Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I think we all understand cancer to a certain extent, but we don't understand autoimmune diseases. From the moment I was in that hospital bed, I dedicated my life to patient advocacy. From Offscript Media, I am Matthew Zachary, and this is Out of Patience. On today's show, Lily Stairs. She's the founder of Patient Authentic, which is exactly as it sounds, a bully pulpit that takes the chocolate that is the health tech sector and the peanut butter that are the nonprofits and makes the Reese's peanut butter cup of social change that puts the patient at the forefront of every conversation. I think I did that right. Look, advocates are not born. They're made, often of their own condition, and Lily is no exception, what with being diagnosed with psoriasis at the age of seven, and then both psoriatic arthritis and Crohn's disease at 19. Yep, she's been living in the shit-happen store for quite a while, but with a level of gumption, moxie, and chutzpah, chutzpah, you gotta get the ch just right, that has made her one of the most influential voices of her kind in all the land. She's worked for pharma, bio, patient advocate groups, nonprofit organizations. Needless to say, she wears many hats. We spent a lot of our time on the show talking about what I call the donut hole of access between the health tech industry and the nonprofit sector. But with all that said, please enjoy my conversation with the one and the only Lily Stairs. Lily, I wanted to welcome you to the show, but I think the greatest non-competitive competitive thing we share is that you entered your shit happen store two years before me at 19. I was 21, but you were seven technically, right? The first shit happen store was seven. Talk me through your childhood in understanding what this must have been like for you in school and your parents for those listening out there who will relate and nod their heads. Yeah. Ooh, you did your research. You know the exact dates of all my diagnoses. Should I be concerned? I'm not a LinkedIn stalker. <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah, so at seven, I was diagnosed with psoriasis, which is an autoimmune disease of the skin. I basically had what looked like chicken pox all over my entire body. And Unlike chicken pox, it didn't go away um, unless I was treating it with steroid cream. I even – my mom would drive me every morning into the city before elementary school so that I could stand in a light box for 10 seconds to have 
uh, UV rays hit my skin and try to clear up the psoriasis. So uh, it was a very involved process for my family and and for myself. You know, I was very self conscious about it from a young age, but the psoriasis, truthfully, was nothing compared to what was to come when I was nineteen. I was unaware that psoriasis was an autoimmune disease when I was diagnosed. I had never heard the term. Not one doctor had ever said autoimmune. And I had never really heard the word autoimmune until I ended up being diagnosed back to back with psoriatic arthritis and Crohn's disease at the age of 19. Gesundheit. Gesundheit. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) What do you mean? No, like that's a lot of syllables of crap. Yeah. Oh, oh, I see. I see. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah, it is. Um, and it, honestly, it was a very severe onset. So I had total body arthritis to the point that I couldn't move. My mom was dressing me and feeding me. And six months later, I ended up hospitalized for weeks. The physicians didn't know what was going on. I had this unbelievable stomach pain, unlike anything I had ever felt before in my life. Uh, They thought I was faking it because, unfortunately, this is something that happens to a lot of women in our healthcare system. People say it's all in your head. That's a whole other podcast topic, uh, which we get to later. But yeah, so I received that Crohn's disease diagnosis, and I honestly started Googling while I was in the hospital bed. And come to find out, I said, oh my God, I have this trifecta of three autoimmune diseases. And there are 50 million Americans living with an autoimmune disease but it's not something you hear often, right? Like I think we all understand cancer to a certain extent. We empathize with it, but we are not we don't understand autoimmune diseases and we don't understand how they wreak havoc and their their lifelong conditions. And so from the moment I was in that hospital bed, I dedicated my life to patient advocacy. I didn't know what it was at the time, but I, I knew that I had to do something to help patients. What what inspires me the most is the common threads. I mean, I had brain cancer at 21. I was also misdiagnosed, not taken seriously. And in all of my work in pediatric, adolescent, young adult cancer, the not taken seriously narrative is just, it's there. And it's, mm-hmm. it's enraging. But is there a forgiveness-ish part to this where these doctors aren't necessarily acutely trained to recognize this in younger people or... When it is a chronic condition or an autoimmune disease that may typically be more in the younger audiences, how do they not know this? What's, what are your thoughts on the empathic nature of primary care or specialty care? Yeah, you know, that's a great point and a good question. So first off, there are just so many studies that point to women not being taken seriously by their physician. And so I do think that is a problem that exists in and of itself. But we do have have a problem with the way that physicians are taught. And physicians are taught to, when, when they go into a specialty, to focus on that one area of the body. So if you're a gastroenterologist, you're thinking about the GI tract. If you're a dermatologist, you're thinking about the skin. Rheumatologist, joints. And so with autoimmune diseases, you often need multiple specialists because you could have one disease 
but it impacts a number of different places on your body. So psoriatic arthritis, for example, is going to impact your skin and your joints. And so it can be difficult for a physician who is so focused in their specialty to think outside the box and understand these autoimmune diseases on a more holistic level. And that's where patients end up getting misdiagnosed. They end up getting bounced around. And then once they are diagnosed, they really struggle to have their doctors communicating because they need to see so many and they're responsible for their care. So, you know, I'm not sure if that answers your question and, and it certainly doesn't solve the problem, but I do think that there's a lot of work we need to do in the education education department when physicians are being trained. Yeah. I mean, I feel like we should enter a, create a new subspecialty called Dr. Jenga. Oh my gosh. I love that. I'm stealing it. You can steal it. I just said it. The public domain was listening. Go someone, someone go register drjenga.com and <laughs> make a fortune. I'll take a cut one day. Yeah. I, I want to go back to your entrepreneurial spirit because not everyone's born an advocate. Shit happens and you may become one. You may not want to become one. I didn't realize how pissed I was about what I went through until I met other people that went through it that I didn't know about. Mm -hmm. And this, how could I not know that there, there's peer support? How could I not know? How could I not know? You were 21st century. This was recent by comparison to my Stone Age crap. <laughs> Where were you in the space of social media, digital community? What, what happened to you socially? How did you get woke to, oh my God, I'm pissed. I'm going to do something. Oh, that's a great question. Uh, so... I, let's see, I was on Twitter at the time that I was diagnosed and I was really just using it for like fun tweets about whatever I was posting about while I was in college. I can't tell you much about that. But I was on Twitter and I was on Facebook and I honestly, I really did go to social media right away when I was diagnosed. And I I can't remember the exact path to how I got there, but I know that I found other patients living with autoimmune diseases on Twitter. And I started to see that they all had blogs. And I thought, hmm, this is something I could do. And keep in mind, after I was diagnosed, I was really sick. It takes a long time for autoimmune patients to find the right treatment. So I was out of college for a while. I was living at home, uh, missed being with my friends. And so blogging, I thought, would be a great way for me to have an outlet to vent, but to also help others. And so this is a little known fact, and I don't tell too many people this, but I actually started under the blog name, Autoimmune Barbie. Wow. <laughs> it's a good thing this is being recorded. Yeah. <laughs> I've come a long way. I think it still exists somewhere. If you, if you happen upon it, well, first of all, please don't Google it. But if you do happen upon it, <laughs> don't judge my writing. And also the fact that I called myself a Barbie doll. I, I feel like I'm, I'm much more of a feminist now. But bar hey, Barbie's trying to get a little feminist too. Yeah, I mean, I think she's come a long way. By the way, total sidebar for those listening, there's a um, this is one of my favorite Netflix specials. It's called The Toys That Made Us. And Barbie was one of the shows that they featured on episode on season one. So if you're epicurious, check out Netflix, The Toys That Made Us and the Barbie episode. Oh, I like it. That's a good plug. This podcast is not sponsored by Netflix. Certainly not sponsored by Netflix. Just sponsored by a great show I happen to like, says me. <laughs> we use the words like gumption and moxie and chutzpah. Were you inherently born that way or did this come out of you when you realized that you have this business head about you and you're also now the accidental advocate you didn't know you were going to be? Full of good questions, Matt. I'm I have been doing this for 18 years. You have. So. Uh, so 
I actually feel like this has just been an inherent part of who I am since I was born. I always definitely had moxie. My mom will tell you that from a young age, I I was the only girl in a class of all boys at a preschool. And I used to tell them, oh, ladies first on the swing. And oh, wow. be first in line. And so I, I think from a young age, that was always a part of me. And then when I moved into high school, I had watched my brother, who is a gay man and is just one of the most amazing people I know, one of the most talented people I know, be relentlessly bullied throughout his entire life. And it really, it hurt me to watch people treat him so horribly for just being the person he was. And so I was inspired at that point in my life to start an anti-bullying group at my high school. And so this is where my entrepreneurial spirit actually started to come out at a young age in that I was able to bring all of these people together from across cliques. I had jocks, I had kids in theater, uh, quote unquote nerds. We had the popular kids. We had all of these people from, you know, who came from different backgrounds, different cliques, came together to raise awareness and to try to stop bullying within our high school. And we ended up putting together an assembly that we brought to local schools within the area because it was so successful at our own school. And so from a young age, I definitely wanted to champion the underdog and had this entrepreneurial spirit to build and to build movements that matter. Uh, You went to college? I went to college. and For what? What'd you study? I studied public advocacy and rhetoric. You might actually be one of the people that's doing what you did in college. <laughs> yes, true. You know, it did sit under the communications umbrella, which often gets a lot of flack as right. being a major that's, you know, sort of the easy major. But I have to say, I learned a lot in my college classes. I went to Northeastern University, which has an amazing co-op program. And I was I was diagnosed, of course, with my autoimmune diseases while I was in college. And I had professors that said, Lily, you should go work in the biotech industry because this is the industry that's literally saved your life. And they were right. And so I actually got my start in biotech through Northeastern's co-op program. And the rest is history. I've been in healthcare ever since. Back with our guest after the break. (sighs) The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery Starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs. Now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. 
I was going to comment that you wear a lot of hats, and that's not necessarily typical anymore. A lot of people that we see that are in the biopharma world have been there a very long time. They just keep swapping jobs. But you've worn an advocate hat, a pharma hat. I think you have some agency-ish background as well. And you're also like a writer and a blogger and an influencer. And you use Twitter for good, which is an a hold on that because I want to get back to Twitter for good because no one really puts those three words together a lot these days. So in terms of how you were able to muster being a patient while working in bio, I'll jump back for a second. My first job when I couldn't go off and be a film composer was working at, a, at an ad agency in healthcare that repped clients who made the drug that saved my life. And it was the weirdest confluence of like black hole and event horizon. And I really just want to get out of here. But I leaned into it. What was it like for you to join the bio world when you were a sort of a, a bio petri dish? <laughs> That's another good question. I think that everybody has a different experience because I do know a couple of folks like yourself who are patient advocates who end up working in industry. And I know some people who they can't work in their their own therapeutic area because in many ways it's too painful for them. And I just, I leaned really hard into it. I, I was so excited that I had found this calling that I'm really passionate about and this space where I could work, I could work, which we spend a lot of our lives working. I could work and do something really meaningful. And so I was actively looking for any opportunity where I could be leveraging my skill set in marketing and advocacy to help support patients. And, and within the biotech space, of course, there were so many opportunities because patient advocacy at the time when I was getting started out, when at the time when I was starting, it was that this budding field. It hadn't been around for a long time. Not every biotech company had brought patient advocacy in. A lot of them still haven't. We still have work to do there. But it is definitely a lot more common. And so I learned about it as a career path. And I said, this is what I've got to do. And I ended up, yeah, bouncing around. To, I was at an agency where I helped biotech and pharma companies build advocacy relations programs. And I actually ended up transitioning into health tech because I saw this gap where we saw pharma and nonprofit patient advocacy organizations working together, but I didn't see health tech working with patient advocacy organizations. It was this unmet need. It felt like nobody was really doing it. And so I said, I want to carve out a path for myself there because I love, you know, I have this entrepreneurial spirit. I love building. And so how can we get these health tech groups to begin engaging with patient patient advocacy? And that's how I transitioned from biotech pharma over to the health tech side of things. Yeah. And that's really the meat and potatoes of what I think we could spend the rest of the show talking about is the gaps, I think we call it the donut hole of opportunity <laughs> lost between the nonprofit advocate groups. I mean, I would say a, a select breed of the nonprofit advocate groups and the health tech sector. And just for our listeners, uh, we talked about this like a week and a half ago and are kind of prepped to have it really isn't like a battle bots debate. It really is more of a, an intellectual conversation on where the gaps are and are there ways to, I guess, maybe put corks in the dam to make sure that the water stays where it needs to be. That was the wrong metaphor, but I hope people understand what the hell I'm trying to talk about. From my nonprofit hat, with regard to this specific conversation, I've always felt that since we were a fairly large 
fairly reputable community of like niche patients, like millennials and Gen X patients. The health tech companies were looking for guidance and advice on how do they grow their product? How do they get focus groups and ad boards and insights? And they were hungry for that from the younger audiences. They didn't necessarily want to go to the boomers or the seniors. We had a captivated audience for them. And yet the reason that we had that captivated audience as a nonprofit was because we busted our ass doing fundraising all the time. We would not be who we were if we weren't busting our ass raising millions of dollars. So I felt it was unfair to give these companies access to the community that we built and struggled to build for so long without them paying us. Mm -hmm. Your turn. That was very eloquently said. And I think you've hit the nail on the head with how a lot of nonprofit patient advocacy organizations feel. And I empathize because as you mentioned, and when we, we've been talking about my background, I wear a lot of hats, right? At first and foremost, I'm a patient and I'm an advocate. I also sit on the board of the American Autoimmune Related Diseases Association, a patient advocacy nonprofit. I've worked with pharma companies and I've worked in health tech. So I empathize with all sides of the equation here. And you're right. Nonprofit organizations do work really hard to get to where they are to build their community. And so much of their work has to be focused on fundraising for a lot of reasons, because number one being that it's really important that we continue to fund research that's going to usher in new treatments and cures for whatever therapeutic area you're focused in. But you also have a responsibility when you're in, in a leadership position at a nonprofit organization, you have to report back to your board, right? That that you've, you're bringing in revenue, you're fundraising for, for this therapeutic area. And so that's a challenge. And on top of that, I will add, nonprofits often have limited bandwidth. So you only have so many team members who can dedicate their time to partnerships. And oftentimes, it makes the most sense to focus your energy on partnerships that are going to produce profit. That being said, on the flip side, from the health tech perspective, health tech is the future of medicine. We have so many companies that are doing really amazing things and ushering in these new products to market that are going to change the way that patients live and already are changing the way that patients live for the better. They are in a scenario where they don't have millions of dollars. Oftentimes, they have less than some of these nonprofit organizations and they mean well. They want to work with patient advocacy organizations, but they don't have the funds to do so. And so how do we close that gap? With people who are coming, these, these two camps, they both have a unique set of needs. How do we get them to work together? I believe there is a way, and I'm happy to talk about that a little bit more, but I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are, are on uh, what I just shared. Right. So stupid cancer my listeners know, uh, people that know me, I have an agency background. I, I have thankfully not worked for pharma or bio. I've had enough to realize I never really want to do that. But I, I really believe that uh, Stupid Cancer had an agency-like model to it. A, we did live events, and B, we had all broadcasting arm with, with the radio show. So I was able to kind of life hack the nonprofit model with regard to these opportunities where endless companies came to me because we could blast something to 20, 30, 50,000 people. Every radio show had 100,000 listeners. So they knew we could get the word out for them because we had built a massive audience. 
So at the end of the day, we had to create almost like a, a filtration system, a screening process to decide who are they? Are they made of cancer patients? I don't mean biologically. You know, are they looking to sell snake oil? Is this a valuable product? I, I, we had to become our own good housekeeping gatekeeper. And at the end of the day, when we realized that there were some that we believe, to your point, have intrinsic value for tens of thousands of people to be made aware of to take advantage of, you know, some of them were products that cost money. So do we really want to be the nonprofit that's asking them to donate to us and spend 200 bucks for this test? Those are the ethical issues we face with God blowback and, and, and responsibility and transparency. So because we had a radio show, we were able to basically sell ads and do sponsorships of the show at a fraction of the cost of paying us what they would think they would do with another organization. And we had live events. We had 100 events a year with meetups and boot camps and conferences and our, our trade show. And we did like stunts like our road trip and we had an app for a while. So all these adjacent ways that most nonprofits don't interact programmatically, we were able to do that for many of these health tech startups to get them off the ground. So I would consider how I decided to run that company with my team very differently than you go to a traditional or maybe a nonprofit that doesn't have a wacko like me who has an agency background running it. It's a gap. It exists. It still exists. What are your thoughts on how do you solve this, if there's a solution at all? Yeah. And I love the approach that you took. So you basically had an opportunity for health tech companies to get involved if you'd vetted them. And can I ask, who was vetting these all of these health tech company requests that were coming in? Because I have to assume there were probably a lot of them. Well, I mean, it was very snowballish. Once we did one, it's like the FOMO kicked in before the word FOMO was FOMO. <laughs> and we had, like, if you ever looked at the stupid cancer media deck, I mean, what nonprofit does a media deck? We did with our reach and our demography and our psychography. Like, you can hit this many people with this much money. It was like a Google ad buy, in a sense. They hit the big red button on Facebook or our mailing list or whatever. And it was largely me. We had people do triage when they came with a separate email address, like maybe leave me alone at stupidcancer.org was the email address. <laughs> but they came in and we looked at them, we vetted them, and we had a conversation with them. And we let them know this is how we operate. As an analog, though, I'll say that we did the same thing with IRB studies because tons of clinics and investigators came to us to say we need opt-ins for our focus groups or our fertility studies or our survivorship studies or our whatever and we couldn't constantly every day, hey, new study with UCLA, hey, new study with USC. We had to vet those too. Mm -hmm. But we didn't charge them because they're IRB and they're investigators and it's different. But we really had to come up with like a 10-point checkmark system. Do you meet these requirements to even have the conversation with us to hit the big red button if you came on our radio show or something? Okay, got it. That That's fair. And and that does take time, right? As an organization that only has so many employees, you, you had to set aside time for that, but you decided that there was a value. And I think what you were doing, to your point, that's very different from other nonprofit organizations is you were speaking the language of health tech. When you talk about that, this was like, this was like a Google ad buy. That's what these health tech founders and small teams understand because they're reporting to investors who want to see this hyper growth, who are looking for these crazy metrics. And I think this is where we're struggling to close the gap is that no one's speaking the same language. And I think that there needs there are a lot of work needs to be done for health tech companies to understand how patient advocacy works work and vice versa. So 
a couple of solutions that I see that I think nonprofits of any size can implement. One of the first ones I recommend is to actually develop a volunteer council comprised of a patient. Now, when I say volunteer, everyone's volunteer except the patient. The patient gets paid because patients should always be paid for their work. Hell yeah. Yes. Amen. So we're going to, the patient's going to be paid. And then you bring in a physician, you bring in somebody with a VC background, you bring in somebody who works in the health tech ecosystem. You have a few different stakeholders that represent the community you're working with, as well as people with health tech savvy. And you bring them together to meet once a month, once a quarter. And what they do is they vet the requests of health tech companies that have made requests to partner with the organization. And this cohort can say, yes, we think this is a great asset to the patient community. We think that we should find a way to partner with this organization. We understand that it may not yield huge financial returns, but we know it's going to be a benefit for the community. So we want to invest the time and help this company out. Or on the flip side, this company is worthless. It's clear they're not they're not talking to patients and they don't really understand. They've created something that's not going to move the needle. We don't want to partner with them. And that way, it's this volunteer council that isn't taking time away from your core staff, but you're still able to field these requests and be able to support health tech companies as they come in and where it makes sense. What I will say is that for some of the larger companies or, or some of the larger nonprofits, I should say, we're seeing some really innovative solutions coming about. And one that I wanted to specifically call out is from the Crohn's Colitis Foundation. They have an incredible program called IBD Innovate and IBD Ventures. And they actually are providing funding for solutions in health tech or med tech or small biotech that they believe are going to move the needle for IBD patients. And they are giving away, uh, I believe it's grants up to $500,000 a year to support these organizations and giving them networking opportunities with other companies and pharma companies. So that is really special. And, and I credit the Crohn's Colitis Foundation and other organizations who have taken this step to really implement programs that are selective to to health tech and and startup companies because they're not going away right like we we need to find a way to work together so that we can we can help patients and caregivers in the long run which is what we're all ultimately trying to do is that analogous to like a nonprofit incubator or accelerator yes they they actually refer to it as an accelerator which i think is really unique i mean i guess you'd have to be a business or not, I mean, you're a business, but you're a nonprofit of substantial enough size to be able to allocate a risk model to your, your budget expense forecasting. Oh, totally. I mean, this is for, this is for the big guys of the world, right? This is right. the organizations that are bringing in a lot of money for the smaller non uh, mom and pop nonprofit organizations, they're not going to be able to reach that scale at this point, and that's okay. But they still have access to members of the community. They have the opportunity to, to raise brand awareness about some of these products that could be of benefit. And quite frankly, I, I feel they have a responsibility to do so. That's what patient advocacy is. That's what we're here for, organizations, is to help patients and, and provide them with resources. And so um, you know, forming that council and having that checklist that you mentioned, which I'm going to follow up with you on that because I want to see what your checklist is and compare it with mine. Okay. Challenge accepted. <laughs> we'll see who comes out on top. 
I mean, there definitely was a level of like, I'll say leadership guilt because yes, why wouldn't we want to tell our community about fabulous resources that they should be made aware of to take advantage of if they have access to them or can afford them? Yes. Like we could be the supermarket for our community and here's the stuff on the shelves. But I I keep going back to the fact that we wouldn't be the supermarket if we weren't well-funded. And to what extent is there a, I'll almost say like a value exchange where can you assign a fixed fiscal value to access to the community that we've spent 12 years building versus your investors don't understand philosophically that I, I don't want to cast dispersions. It's not in the investor's psychology to spend money unless you desperately have to, unless it instantly converts to a profit or a gain to accelerate your exit. Mm-hmm. And that's what frustrates the nonprofit person because we we don't have an exit, which is analogous to when you have cancer, you want the exit. When you have rare <laughs> disease, there is no exit. So we're stuck in this mire. Your solution in terms of leveraging the assets and the equity of the larger patient groups, fantastic. But where is any value left for the the under one, two, three, four, five million dollar advocate groups that may have several thousands of people in their community who do deserve to know about these products and services in health tech? Yeah, it's a great question. And again, it's it's like we see this conundrum of you've got to fundraise. You're a great organization because you spend a lot of your time fundraising. And I don't think that I, I am not sitting here arguing that patient advocacy organizations should pull significant time away from that because it's not a reality. And again, to your point about list building, you have spent a lot of time building your list. And it shouldn't be that the nonprofit organization just hands their list over to this health tech company that quite frankly, you don't know if they're going to make it or not and how they're how they're going to be communicating with your list. That's why I also think you do need to be selective to that point. I, I think you could make a rule for yourself where you say, you know, once a quarter, once a month, we're going to highlight a new organization, but we're going to do it on our terms. And it's the lift that makes the most sense for us. I also think that especially for the smaller organizations, it would be helpful to think about ways that you can develop a mutually beneficial relationship that may not necessarily be financially driven. So when I think about the really small nonprofit organizations who don't have a lot of bandwidth, one thing that I've seen health tech companies do and that I've done as the head of patient advocacy at Clara Health when we were really small was offering some services pro bono to the nonprofit, whether that be helping them prepare their social media or you know designing a logo for them or just doing something that adds value that we have the skill set on our team, but maybe they don't have the bandwidth to afford or to just to handle in-house. Um, and so that was one way that we worked to, to build mutually beneficial relationships that weren't necessarily financially driven, but did add value. And so I always encourage people to, to look for those spots where you might be able to have that value exchange. I think this is a conversation we will be continuing because I just had an idea about Tinder for health tech and nonprofits. We can discuss that on the next exciting episode of How Are We Still Alive? No, I'm totally kidding. (laughs) 
<laughs> no more, no more dating apps. No more. We're not, we're not putting the dating apps onto the health tech and uh, nonprofit spirit. Don't, don't subject them to that madness. Oh, I know it's it's an insult to health and dating apps. <laughs> All right, Lily Stairs. Uh, I mean, a unicorn Renaissance woman, true advocate, vice chair of the board of directors of the American Autoimmune Related Diseases Association. Lots of syllables. Gesundheit. Founder and principal of Patient Authentic. What a pleasure. What an honor. More to come. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for hosting me, Matt. Such a pleasure. That's all for today, folks. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is a product of Offscript Media. Our executive producer is Matthew Zachary. Our senior producers are Jen Horanjeff and Andrew McDowell. Darren Tun is our production intern. It is recorded, mixed, and edited by Matthew Zachary. Our theme music is by the Mike Van Allen Quintet and by Mara. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. Hit us up at contact at offscript.com to share comments, feedback, and make guest recommendations. For more information, visit offscript.com.